Welcome to the Shack 15 Conversations podcast, where we invite founders, innovators, and changemakers to share ideas with the community, speak to the experience of building their businesses, and unlock some of the hard-earned wisdom collected along the way. How do we mainstream the story about plastic, climate, and environmental justice? Shack 15 hosted the People Over Plastic BIPOC Storytelling Collective's first story salon with leading voices in the fight for a more just and equitable future. With 99% of plastic coming from fossil fuels, People Over Plastic believes conversations about the climate crisis and the plastic crisis must center people of color and indigenous voices who are most impacted from it. At a recent panel discussion, we listened to stories from renowned environmental attorney and thought leader Patrice Sims, river protector and Trump border wall plaintiff Tricia Cortez, and a community organizer defeating Big Oil, Goldman Prize winner Sharon Levine. The conversation was moderated by globally recognized communicator and plastic pollution expert Shilpi Chotre. Let's have a listen. This is our first story salon for people over plastic and just seeing all of your faces here um, is so incredibly touching. So with deep gratitude, thank you for being here. Um, We really wanna kind of set this up as an intimate story salon. So if you're way in the back and you feel like you need to creep up, please do so at any time. Come in closer, come join us, come be a part of our family. because we can't wait to share these stories with you. So let's get started. It is an honor for me to introduce um, Shilpi Chotrai. She is the co-founder of People Over Plastic. Hi everyone, it's an absolute delight to see so many smiling faces back at us because um, it's a lot of people that are already part of this gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous environmental justice community and combining forces with the Shack 15 team is just dynamite. So huge thanks to the Shack 15 team, um, Jared, Maximilian and Natasha for opening up their space and their hearts to have us here tonight. With everything going on in the world, it has felt really heavy the last couple years. Um, you know, so many of us tonight, this is probably the most people we've seen in a room in a long time. So, you know, there are so many things to be thankful for and grateful for, um, including celebrating February, which is Black History Month. We're coming at an end here. Um, we have. Three of the foremost environmental justice leaders, not only in the country, in the world, up here with me tonight. And it's a deep, deep honor to call these folks my my friends, my mentors, and my colleagues. And I think because I've had the immense privilege of working in the space for so long, I understand how much it took for them to be here. Um, you know, Patrice from DC, Trisha from Texas, Miss Sharon from Louisiana. I didn't even tell them what I was doing. I just said, could you be in San Francisco on February 24th? And they said, yes. And so I, I'm deeply humbled and, uh, 
You know, what we're trying to do with people over plastic is, is quite different when we talk about environmental justice because of all of the other intersectional issues, including social justice and racial justice that are simply not talked about enough. And the individuals up here with me today are constantly talking to policymakers, decision makers, media, and in very little time have to come up with digestible nuggets of palatable information, often you know, watered down information um, to give to whatever audience. And when Patrice and I co-founded People Over Plastic, it was really important for us to actually not have any agenda. We wanted to have space for black and brown and indigenous communities to have dialogue for the sake of dialogue. And there's something so powerful in unfiltered and raw storytelling. Um, for some of you, you might be familiar with uh, People Over Plastics podcast. It was our first media project that features all three of these guests here today. And, and we're just getting started. So we definitely want to take these conversations to spaces where we know will have significant impact. And the fact that you're here tonight is an amazing example of what we think we can, we can build with your support. So without further ado, I really wanna get into the storytelling part of the evening. Um, all three of our guests here asked me to do short bios because it's probably gonna be the hardest part of the night for me because they all have like six page long bios. So I'm gonna um, keep this short and sweet so we can get right into it. And I'm analog tonight with my watch so I can keep checking. Um, and I'm gonna take a seat. So yeah, as, as Smita mentioned, please come up closer if, if you wanna get a, a closer look at, at the stories and just wave if, if you can't hear us and we'll, we'll speak a little louder. So I'm gonna start um, with Ms. Sharon Levine who's here to my right. Uh, Ms. Sharon, you're like probably 75% of the audience is here to see you tonight. So. <laughs> And please know, as you know, someone that I deeply respect and admire, we are holding so much honor for you and your story. And I know how hard it was for you to come. And I'm, I'm really grateful to be sitting here next to you. For people that don't know Ms. Sharon's story, she is a symbol of hope and perseverance. This woman is taking down entire industries in the heart of her homeland, in an area of the country which is called Cancer Alley. Yes, we have such a fucked up racist system that we have an area of this country called Cancer Alley, and this is Miss Sharon's home. And what I think is really important for people to know is St. James Parish, the town she's from, wasn't born for oil and gas production. It was born for a, being a thriving black community. So with every, everything that she's done to stand up against these, I'm not even going to give them the credit to say powerful industrial complexes, she has the courage to stay at her home and, and fight for what she believes in. 
And for those of you that don't know, and this is, I promise this is the only fact I'm going to put out there because Patrice and I agreed we wouldn't do any facts tonight, but 99% of plastic comes from oil. So please keep that in mind. If you care about climate change, you do care about plastic and especially the production piece. So Ms. Sharon, um, and I'll, I'll be short here, she's a Goldman Prize winner, which is the highest environmental award for, for environmentalists in this room. Um, very well deserved. Uh, she was also in People Magazine and Forbes and flying to Abu Dhabi soon to be recognized by, for, for the Forbes Award. So please welcome our storyteller, Ms. Sharon Levine. All right, I know, Patrice, I'm supposed to keep these short. <laughs> so hard. Um, Trisha. Trisha Cortez is probably one of my favorite people on the planet and probably so many of us from the Break Free from Plastic movement um, would agree with me. Uh, Trisha is from Laredo, Texas. And I want everyone, before I say anything about Trisha, just to look over to the left or the right, just wherever you're sitting to the window here. Just you know, take this all in. Now imagine a 30-foot steel wall going through the bay, separating the East Bay from San Francisco. I wouldn't be here tonight if that happened. I live in Oakland. This is Trisha's story. She is not only the executive director of Laredo's only NGO focused on the environment called the Rio Grande International Study Center, but she also recently defeated the Trump administration's plans to build a 30-foot steel wall through her hometown. Okay. So when we talk about environmental justice, think about that. It is part of the same struggle around civil liberties and there is always a common thread about protecting community and family. The first thing Trisha said to me, she was like, I was thinking about my kids. And so I'll let her tell the rest of that story tonight. Um, last but not least, we have People Over Plastics co-founder Patrice Sims. Um, it has been such an incredible journey getting to know Patrice over the last six months. I had him as a guest on the podcast and we ended up, you know, what was on the calendar for an hour ended up being like a three and a half hour conversation about all the fundamental things that need to change about when we talk about environmental justice and really centering the BIPOC community, so people, if you don't know BIPOC, shame on you, first of all, but it's black, indigenous, people of color, um, uh, communities when we talk about environmental justice issues because they are the ones that are most impacted. When you talk about things like plastic and climate, it's always communities of color around the world that are facing the burden and shouldering the struggles of these multi-layered complex issues. But we also wanted to make sure there was a lot of empowerment in that storytelling. Because even though they are burdened, they are the most knowledgeable and have the most lived experience. So that's exactly what People Over Plastic is doing. And it was compelling enough for Patrice to come along. Uh, but he has a long, 
long line of accomplishments, a 25-year career in the environmental advocacy world. He's a leading environmental attorney, worked um, under the Obama administration, the Biden transition team. He has worked for um, the historically black college university in DC, Howard's Law Center as a professor. He's also teaching at Harvard right now. Um, so anyways, he's the fact that he's making time to even be here and join forces with the people over plastic team. I see all of you. Um, thanks for being here. Uh, we, we're just extremely delighted and humbled to have him um, building this with us. So is there anything else I want to say about Patrice? Okay. All right. He's the bomb, basically. And... Okay, I gotta get going here because I wish we had like multiple hours for this, but we, we sadly don't. And I'm gonna start with a story of my own. When I was eight years old, I was visiting India where uh, my family's from. I'm first generation Indian American. And I remember waking up super early because I was jet lagged or whatever and, and hanging out with my grandma who praise from dawn until dusk. So she was up very, very early. The sun wasn't even out. And I remember seeing women kind of hunched over, picking at things. And I thought they were, they looked really beautiful. They had their traditional saris, their bangles, their bindis, sometimes a baby on the hip. And I was like, what are they doing? You know, second grade curiosity. And I was told, you know, there was a social divide. So they were waste workers um, picking up trash. And I realized, you know, from a very young age about the inequities and the unfairness in society. And India is not the only place with a class system. I want to make that very clear. There's invisible class systems everywhere, including our very own Bay Area. So, you know, it was a pretty formative experience. And fast forward several decades where I start learning about the entire plastic pollution life cycle, spend a lot of time in South Asia, Southeast Asia, and the trash would just keep growing and growing and growing. And then I learned that the US is exporting a significant portion of our trash to areas like India, right? So it all came kind of full circle for me. And that's my question for you all, is what was a formative experience that sort of brought you to where you're at now? And I want to start with Patrice. All right. Can folks hear me okay? Awesome. All right. Thanks, Shilpi. Uh, and, and just um, thank you for that really kind introduction. And my response to that is just try to keep me away from this effort. Um, well, I'm going to do, uh, I promise I don't have a scripted conversation to have here, but I do have a prop that I want to uh, that I want, it is on, Can a little louder, okay. Very good, uh, is that better? Okay, um, I do have a prop that I wanna use. Uh, I didn't tell you about this, Shilpi, because I didn't realize I was gonna do this until last night. Um, so I wanna start by saying there's nothing obvious about me ending up doing the work that I was doing, that, that I am doing, and having all the experiences that I've had certainly didn't anticipate becoming a leader uh, in the environmental movement. I didn't anticipate working for uh, multiple 
uh, administrations, on environmental issues. I didn't anticipate being so deeply involved in environmental law and environmental justice. Um, but I want to tell you a little story that I only just came to learn uh, in the last couple of years. Um, my mother, uh, Nancy, who um, had a habit when I was growing up of keeping notes in a journal about all of the things that happened in our lives, uh, and especially uh, with respect to what I was up to as a little child, um, gave me a framed note that she had written from 1974. I was five years old, uh, and this note was about a time when, as it turns out, I called my first environmental meeting. <laughs> and I'm going to read you a little bit of this uh, because I think it's kind of amusing. And no one has heard this story before. I literally have not told this story to anyone. I only discovered the existence of this uh, earlier and during the pandemic when my mother was spending so much time going through materials uh, from her past. Um, so here's the note uh, from Nancy's Journal, May 4th, 1964. Patrice called a meeting on pollution the other day in Andrea's room on the floor. Patrice laid out the rules. No meeting lying down. <laughs> Agenda. Pollution. Air, rivers, ocean, land, fish dying, birds dying, raccoons dying, people dying. Factories pollute. Why? Money. We ended the meeting by Patrice lying down and a consensus that it was all right to have a meeting lying down <laughs> or standing on your head. So uh, I, I wanted to share that. I wanted to share that and, and then also just reflect on the fact um, again, I had no idea this is where I would end up. I did, uh, I, I will try to tell this part really pretty quickly, but um, nothing about it was obvious. It wasn't obvious that I would do this work, it wasn't obvious that I would study law, it wasn't obvious that I would go to college at all, in fact. Um, when I was growing up, uh, you know, we were, we were very poor. We had very little money, um, and uh, there were periods of time when we didn't have a home. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I think about uh, my path to this work, and I think that's, that's part of, your, part of the, the question here, uh, I realized that I came to it in a really circuitous way. I like to start many of the conversations I have in the context of my day job as a um, as an environmental lawyer and environmental leader, by, when I'm having conversations about environmental justice, I often start by saying, I don't really come from environmental justice, right? I'm a lawyer and I came to this work through a different path. One of the things that I've come to realize is that that's not really true. Uh, with the perspective that I have now of 53 years on this planet and 20 plus years around work uh, with environmental justice advocates, uh, intersecting with environmental justice communities and dealing with environmental justice issues, I look at my past in a really different way. And I realize there are many ways that I come from environmental justice. 
and I didn't even know it. And I didn't know it because I didn't have the language to use, I didn't have the framework to think about what environmental justice was and how it connected to, to my formative periods of my life. I'm gonna give you just a really quick story about this. I promise I'll be, I'll be brief. Um, by way of example, uh, when I graduated from high school, uh, something else that it wasn't necessarily obvious that that was gonna happen, um, I was a construction worker. Uh, in, in the first couple of years out of high school. And I look back on the work that I did then in, in a sequence of jobs. And um, so I'll give you a quick example. When I was a construction worker, I, we were working on remodeling a big old grocery store like a Safeway, right? Um, and I remember a time, I had no idea it was happening at the moment and the significance of it. But I remember a time we were working on a demolition project inside this grocery store and someone came to realize that part of the material that we'd come across was asbestos. Won't surprise many of you who know what that is. Um, and uh, it may or may not surprise you to know what happened next. Our foreman said, that's fine. We'll just wait to nighttime when the ocean inspectors are sure not to show up and then you guys tear it out of there and get rid of it. Now I was, 18 or 19, didn't know any better, didn't realize that, you know, that, that, that perhaps I had power to do something about that. Um, and we did it. Um, that, was, that was sort of what you, what you did. Um, a year or so later, I had a job in a factory. Uh, this was a snowplow factory, as it turns out, uh, up in New England. And I ended up in that job doing a couple of the most uh, having a couple of the most toxic experiences that you can possibly imagine, certainly the most toxic experiences of my life. Uh, I was assigned as a young, uh, probably the only, other than my, my friend, who I'll talk about in a second, um, the only black employee at the, at the factory. Uh, and they assigned me this job of uh, using compressed air system to blow the soot out of arc welders. Um, I had no idea what they were. I had no idea what was in this stuff. I still don't know what was in this stuff, although I know now that it's bad. <laughs> um, I had no protective equipment other than a kind of cloth mask, mask, the kind of things you guys are all wearing now. And I remember I would go home from that job every day and take a bath. And I would get out of the bathtub and the water would be black. I would blow my nose and the tissue would be black. Um, and I did that job for a couple of weeks, then they moved me to an even better job which is a job in the dip room. Um, so this is how snowplows get yellow, or whatever color they are. Uh, and the point of this job was to stand in a room and bring the snowplow parts into the middle of a, a swimming pool-sized vat of paint, dip them down into the paint, lift them up again, and move them on to the next thing. And we were in that, those, I was the one working in that room. I was in that room for eight hours a day. Uh, I had a respirator, not an oxygen, supply, but a, you know, a filtered respirator. But I remember when I left that job every day, I could not smell for several hours. Um, so I, one of this, I say all this to say, I look back on that and I realize that, that the system I was working within had the same disregard for my well-being, contempt for my well-being, that we see over and over and over again in the environmental justice context. And I look back at that now and I say, wait a minute, I may be a lawyer, I may have come to this work through the law and through an experience 
um, that, that I didn't realize was rooted in environmental justice. But what I have come to realize over the course of the work that I've been doing for the last 20 years is that I am from environmental justice, as many, many people don't realize they are. And my cycle has come full circle and brought me back to this realization and to this work, uh, and to Shilpi and to the wonderful people on this panel. And I really look forward to hearing the rest of the stories today. Thank you, Patrice, for, I mean, your vulnerability in sharing that story. I think um, I did not know that. And, you know, we've been working really closely for a long time. And, um, yeah, I got chills. So really, thank you for, for having the honest and raw storytelling that we were sort of manifesting. Um, Trisha or Miss Sharon, do you have a story to share? Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's so nice to be here to share my story with you. I'm from a little town in Louisiana called St. James. We have seven districts, and I live in the fifth district where we have 12 industries and refineries within a 10-mile radius. This industry called Formosa Plastics made the announcement that they wanted to be built in St. James in the 5th District where I live, two miles from my home. When I went into prayer and I prayed, and God told me to fight. Before I started this fight, I was a school teacher. Before I taught school, we had a wonderful place to live. We had clean air, we had clean soil, we could drink the water from the hydrant. We can't do that anymore. When I was a little girl, my daddy made us pick butter beans, snap beans, okra. We had fresh vegetables, we had pecan trees. It was flourishing, we had so much. We had livestock, we didn't have to buy anything. The food was there, we grew our food. Now. We have so much industry. It started to come in in the late 60s. And my daddy was grateful, was happy. Everyone thought it would bring jobs. It did bring jobs. 30 years later, he brought sickness and death. We are now battling for our lives in St. James, especially in the fifth district. I have two brothers with cancer. I was tested. Thank God I don't have it. So many people have cancer, they are keeping it a secret. So many women have breast cancer. I can give you a list of women in my fifth district with breast cancer. Some of them survived, some of them passed away. One of our members of RIDES, he had bone cancer. He didn't even know until he was cutting grass one day and he fell. It was so heartbreaking. We had a member of RISE. Her name was Geraldine. She was a whopper of a speaker, and she was a go-getter. She went to the plant to ask the plant to buy her out. The plant told her no. They bought the white neighbors out with the, with the big, beautiful brick homes and the land. They bought their homes, and they moved out. 
they left us there. But I don't want to be moved out because I feel like that's my home. I shouldn't make room for industry to come in and destroy my home. And I don't have the funds to pack up and leave. And I wouldn't want to leave my neighbors because that's where I was born and raised and that's where I'm going to stay. Formosa Plastic thought that no one would speak up until one day when I spoke to God and God told me to fight. God put a fight in me that Formosa can't touch. And I know Formosa is not going to come two miles from my home. I always said if I had to get out there with a, with a picket, a, a sign or something, if I had to do it by myself, Formosa is not coming two miles from where I live. I don't think so. I want to talk to President Biden. I've been trying to meet with him for the longest to let him know he better do something. This is an emergency. We are dying. And I mean dying. People are sick. Children are sick with asthma. He needs to do something. Somebody needs to do something. Because we are not leaving. We're not going anywhere. We have two industries on, on each side of this, this little community. The community is called Burden Lane. We have Marathon and New Star. These people are just putting that pollution on those people. Those people are so sick in Burton Lane, and a lot have already died. How many more have to die for industry? Then we have another industry that wants to come in, not far from where I live. I think that one is about four miles. It's called South Louisiana Methanol. Our parish officials gave them the permit telling them they could build. That's another one that we have to fight. How many more do we have to fight? Our public officials don't even want to speak to RISE because we formed this organization to speak up and to stop any more from coming in. And our public officials vote for these things to come in. And the idiots live there with us. But they want to, they vote for these people to come in. So if we die, they're going to die too. They're drinking the same dirty water, but we have to buy bottled water. I'm so tired of buying bottled water until I bought a filter. But look at everybody else that have to buy bottled water. Our pecan trees are not flourishing anymore. The pecan trees dying. Fruit trees are dying. The particles of particulate matter 2.5 that's in the air. It gets into your eyes, into your hair, into your skin. Look how many years we've been passing by that industry and, and, and getting these chemicals in our bodies. People pass by that same industry, they wind up with strep throat, eye problems like me. And um, this friend of mine, she had to pass a different way to go to work because passing by that industry, she always was in the doctor's office. And the doctor asked her if she lived near industry and she told him yes. So that was the reason why she was always sick. My oldest daughter had to move away from St. James because she was always getting strep throat. She was always sick. So she moved away. That's not right. We shouldn't have to leave our homes for industry. And just like I said, the fight that God put in me, no more industry is coming into St. James. We have attorneys that's helping us to fight this battle. It's a long fight. We started our fight in 2018. That's when we started RISE. We were so excited. We were in my den, and we said, we're going to stop this fight. I mean, stop this plant. Because the organization that I was in, 
They said, we can't stop industry. So I think I should move out of this organization. They were afraid to fight. So I did. I left them idiots alone. And I found my own organization. So that organization, we asked them to join with us. They, they're mad with us. They won't even join with us. They won't even help us. But that's okay. We got other people that's helping us. All over the world that's helping us. So we're going to win. And I know we're going to win. And we're also suing the mayor of Gramercy. That's one of the areas in St. James. He didn't want us to march in his little old town. I like his nerve. So we're we suing him. So I'll, I'll be in court on the 14th of March. And we're going to win. Because you can't stop us from marching in the town. So, I mean, there's so much we have to fight. I'll be in court on Monday, March the 14th. And March the 15th with the mayor of Gramercy. On the 14th, we're going to court about Formosa with the Clean Air Act. The air is dirty. They got a permit to pollute us. How, how you like that? They got a permit to pollute us. The politicians need to be out. The parish president needs to be out. If we have to form another organization or get more people to help us, we are going to get people to run against them, and we're going to vote them out. The parish president told us to our face, me and my daughter was there, that he support the industry to come in here because we need jobs. And I told him, we want clean jobs, not jobs that are going to pollute us. He said, no, he wants Formosa to come in. Oh, that man made me so angry. But I didn't, I didn't hit him or anything, but I wanted to. I wanted to because he's just like an idiot. And then we talked to our parish council in our district who voted for Formosa. He said that he voted for it because he wanted to get things for the 5th district. Like he, he wanted them to do fence, fence line monitoring. The plant's supposed to already do that. So, so you, you, you made a deal with the plant you asked for six things. One thing he asked for is to beautify the park. What is a park if you can't breathe clean air? I don't understand. Are they, are they illiterate or something wrong with them? I don't understand that. They're putting profit over people. They're putting industry over our lives. But he lived there too. Just like I told him, if I die, you're going to die too. The pollution is going to kill you too. If Formosa is built, it's going to triple the emissions in the 5th district where I live, two miles from my home. It's going to triple in the whole parish. The politicians are against us. I don't care. I don't need the politicians. They're not doing anything for us anyway. The, uh, the representative that we voted in office, he won't even speak with us. We call a meeting to talk to him, to let's try to help us stop this plant. He wouldn't even meet with us. The other councilman in South Vashry, he ran away from us. We went to his house. He saw us with our rice shirts on, and he passed right by us, and he waved at us. So we called ourselves, go and walk to his truck to meet him. Boy, he sped off. I said, oh, he's afraid of us. So they, they won't even talk to us. But our, but our councilman in the 5th District came to speak with us. Me and my daughter was there and four other people. So I turned to him and I asked him to let us help him stop Formosa. He looked at me and said, the people are talking about you. I said, let them talk. I don't care if they talk about me. I said, we, we want to stop this plant. 
We don't care who is talking about anyone, but I said, they're talking about you too. But you are our councilman, not me. I don't get paid for this. You are getting paid with our taxpayers' money. He assured us that he's not gonna help us. He's not gonna help us. So we're gonna try to get someone to run against him and vote his behind out. He's not for us. Ms. Sharon, how, you know, you have quite an audience here that are very tuned in. I think your fight is where we need to put all of the attention full stop. What is your message in terms of what we can do right now? Come and help us march and get them out of that office. All right, we had our first march on November 3rd, 2018. That was two weeks after we started Rise St. James. And from there, we've been going. We need help with uh, organizing. We need to hire more staff. My daughter and I are tired. We work tirelessly. And we have another person that's, that's on, on staff with us, and that's it. We are so tired because we're doing all the work. And we can come we up, we come up with strategies. Can we help you fundraise tonight? Can you direct people to somewhere they can donate? RiseStJames.org. There you go. And, and also GoFundMe. I have a GoFundMe because my home was destroyed in a hurricane. Yeah. And I'm working out of a travel trailer that don't have Wi-Fi. I have to sleep in there at night, come to my house that's destroyed on my little kitchen table, and get on Zoom. Well, by the way, Miss Sharon's roof had just blown off, and she's still with Shamira, her daughter, uh, took a podcast interview with me from her car. Um, that's how she shows up for her community too, because she knew it was important to me. So um, we are here in honor of you tonight, Ms. Sharon, and like open up your phones and wallets, people. This is a, a worthy cause. Um, Trisha, you're next. <clears throat> Hello, everybody. Good evening. Bienvenidos. Uh, welcome. Buenas tardes. Um, I can't believe that I'm here with y'all getting to speak uh, on behalf of um, so many people where I come from that can't be here. So uh, I feel honored to, to tell our story on behalf of them. Um, I'm originally from San Antonio, Texas. Um, I'm fourth generation Mexican-American. Uh, my great grandma was a mezcalero Apache as well. And uh, I grew up, um, like Patrice, we struggled. I grew up with a single mom. Um, and, you know, she, had, she went through a lot of uh, uh, difficulties. But she was a, a wonderful storyteller. And I'm from downtown San Antonio. And I just remember listening to all of these stories of where she grew up and her grandmother and her mother and, and, and the neighborhood where I'm from. I mean, they all got knocked down. Um, you know, by developers and politicians too, to build freeways and convention centers and parking lots and hotels. And they displaced these uh, thriving uh, working class Mexican American communities. And so much of it is gone. And um, so, you know, and, and my mom would always say, you know, she hated the story of the Alamo. And she's like, it's 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 um it's a lie, but that's the story that prevails because um, you know those are the folks who ultimately won. So you have to tell our story, and um, 
you know, in terms of thinking how I got involved in this work, because it was not ever obvious, but um, I was a chubby little girl. I still am, but I was super chubby. And uh, so I was bullied in elementary school. And, you know, there were a couple of, uh, you know, really um, embarrassing experiences. So, you know, and my mom, you know, that experience, my mom got involved with the Chicano civil rights movement of the 70s and marched. And uh, she just, you know, has this kind of very fierce kind of attitude and, and uh, where you've got to speak up when you've got to speak up. And, uh, and so I think those experiences um, led me to, um, uh, I, you know, have issues with authority, like a lot of y'all, because you would not be here tonight if, you know, you didn't. And, uh, and so that creates a rebellious and stubborn uh, nature, like somebody here to my left, somebody here to my right, and I'm sure a whole bunch of y'all as well. And um, I, I despise injustice and meanness, and um, I always feel motivated by a sense of urgency. And I think, you know, these factors, you know, just kind of lead, uh, I think, many of you who are here and myself to do this kind of work and what Shilpi and, and her team are doing. Um, <clears throat> so I, I, I went to Laredo to become a reporter. I did that for about seven years. And then um, I joined this uh, environmental organization. So um, I've been in Laredo almost 21 years, uh, living there in this organization, um, the Rio Grande International Studies Center, RISC for short. The G might be silent, but we are not. And our mission is, yes, our mission is uh, to, to protect and preserve um, this river. It's, it's our only source of, of drinking water. So I, I got to know Break Free because we spent 10 years working on a plastic bag ban ordinance, went up against the American Chemistry Council, and they ultimately poured gobs of money. This went to the Texas Supreme Court, all of whom are um, Republican elected justices, very much to the right. And, and that's how I got to meet Break Free. And that's I, I, where I, I got to learn um, how to organize. I, I didn't know how, and I learned this language and these things that uh, just captivated me, and I felt like I found my tribe with Break Free. And lo and behold, a couple of years later, you know, the border wall comes knocking on our door. And, you know, we had thought this would just never happen to Laredo. And, um, but um, on February 15th of 2019, um, that's when Donald Trump declared a national emergency um, on the southern border. And I, I remember our feeling at that time, it was, it was um, disbelief and it was outrage um, because we knew why he was doing this. And all of y'all know, right, injustice is injustice is injustice because it involves a bully somewhere, right? And that bully wants something. That bully wants money or power or something. And they need to get, they, need, they don't think twice about the people they have to hurt because that has to happen to get what they want. And they can oftentimes do it because they live far away from that place that's about to get hurt and these communities and people that are about to get hurt. And um, 
all these stories that were being portrayed about the border were were just not ours. It was not our daily lived experience. We were like, what emergency are they talking about? Like, I'm on the river all the time, river monitoring, kayaking, hiking. We have barbecues there, and, and we just didn't understand. And you must know, you know, we didn't go looking for this fight, but when you think about the border wall, this is what it is. What they wanted to do, and they still do, right? Um, they the, the plan was to take 200, 300 feet off the banks of the river. That's a huge amount of land. Clear it to create a security enforcement zone. And that would be, and, and we would give up access to that most precious source of life in South Texas and many other places forever. They were, it was going to be a huge theft of land. They were going to take this land forever to build roads and high intensity floodlights and cameras. And then the 30 foot steel wall, more than twice the height of the Berlin wall was going to be the cherry on top. And the river has become this place where I go to recharge. You know, I, I wish you could come with me and I invite you, you know, you go to the, the, to the banks and, you know, you see egrets and herons and kingfishers and cormorants and you just hear this calmness of the river it's it's not like what you see on fox news all the time or cnn um that is just not our story so um you know laredo um that exists because of that river laredo is built up against the river it was founded before the United States was founded. It was founded in 1755 because of that river. And I could not imagine that we could never go down to the river again. There's neighborhoods, churches, a community college, a Catholic orphanage, uh, uh, ranches, um, homes. Just, I, 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 I could not process that. And this guy and his people just didn't give a damn because they didn't live there. And it didn't matter that how profound this was going to shift. You know, if you come from a city or community where there's a river, I mean, think about what that would be like. It, and um, so, so you know, uh, we're, we're told this, and this is like, I, we had no idea how we were going to do this. It was David versus Goliath, but we were pissed off, you know. And, um, you know, activists always say, you know, don't agonize, organize. And it's hard work. It's tedious work. But you find people and, and to, to, to help move, move, the, move everything forward. So all I can tell you is, we poured our heart and soul into this battle for three years. It wasn't what we wanted to be doing, but we knew that we had to fight this. And the feds dropped four contracts on Laredo um, to destroy 71 river miles for $1.1 billion. And, you know, what you could do with $1.1 billion, you could transform a region. And uh, so... We worked just so hard. We took all these actions. You know, we got to Steve Bannon, and um, and 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 we were able to stop that. And, and what I wanted to say 
And, you know, these things make me emotional because I'm a mom and I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. And I was thinking, you know, they would grow up in a world and all their friends where where that's what they deserved, right? And that that's what they were worthy of, some security enforcement zone and 30-foot steel wall. And I thought that my ass, right? Like Texas and South Texas is founded on a culture of violence and theft um, against Mexican, Americans, brown people, black people. I mean, it is a very brutal history. And I was going to be damned to um, allow that next chapter of that same kind of story persist there. And, oh. And I never thought of myself as from Laredo, you know, but my great-grandparents crossed there in the early 1900s, and they stayed there because of the Mexican Revolution. And I thought of so many people in the United States whose roots started there, escaping revolution and, 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 and terrible things and making this country even greater and better. And, you know, there was never a sense of pride, and the border wall made me realize, like, um, you know, the border's been kicked around a long time, you know, South Texas, and I thought, uh, um, you know, we, this, we're going in the opposite direction, you know, we need to change the narrative, we need to change the story, and say this place is a place to be honored, protected, saved, celebrated, you know, not destroyed. And we, we are worthy. We deserve it. We deserve it. Because what the feds were going to do and what they've done with the border wall is they were going to waive dozens and dozens of federal laws, including the NEPA, to expedite construction. And this happens nowhere except on borderlands and tribal lands. And they do it not just because of where we are, but because of who we are. And maybe they took advantage of us for a long time. You know, brown people, I come from a place that's 95% Hispanic, you know, and so maybe they got away with it for a long time, but not anymore. And so we got after the Biden transition team and we didn't know where this was gonna end. And then when they dismissed those contracts last year, you know, and, and we were, were clients on an on a earth justice lawsuit that's winding down called Risk et al. versus Donald Trump et al. Um, our, our, our little group did it, you know, with a lot of people, but with a lot of heart. And um, all I want to just uh, say is from this experience, you know, it's not over. You know, we've got a governor, Greg Abbott even more to the right. And we've got these extreme right-wing forces circling like vultures over us, and they're, they want South Texas. And so even though we're not a political organization, it's all tied into these political wishes for long-term political gain. And we just cannot allow them to come in and take over our community because they're not from there. And uh, just the last thing I want to say, you know, from this, a silver lining that came from this is the ambassador to Mexico, Ken Salazar. He's a former uh, Colorado senator, interior guy under Obama. He came in December and he has this vision to build a binational river park and he appointed 
myself and somebody else from my org to serve in a small binational working group. And this, you talk about shifting the narrative, transforming the, the, the story and saying we're worthy of something so beautiful. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is like a $500 million project. We need to make this happen quickly, as you can imagine, because of national political stuff. And so if you want to help build a binational river park, the first of its kind like that, and, and help our organization, please, uh, we need your help because we're all after the same thing, right? Like, we all don't want bullies uh, uh, to come in and, and uh, commit the things that they do. So, uh, you know, the other big battle we've got right now is ethylene oxide. It's made from petroleum and uh, it's used as a commercial sterilizer. We had no idea this was even going on in Laredo since 2005, and we learned last year how Laredo ranked as the second largest emitter of this severe carcinogen um, uh, for this sterilizer plant that's based out of Missouri. So that's a, a huge fight. We just formed the Clean Air Laredo Coalition. You know, we need you, um, you know, uh, and, and I just want to thank you and let you know that, you know, each of you is worthy and each of you deserves the very, very best. And um, you don't need anybody to come in and tell you or your family or community um, that your voice just doesn't matter and they've got to do something really destructive and harmful for their gain. They don't even live where you do. So uh, we're all worthy and we all deserve the very best. So thank you. Trisha. Trisha, can you tell people how they can support? Is there a website? Is there a website people can? Mm -hmm. It's uh, rgisc.org. I think there's a way to do it. Uh, you know, so yes. Um, yeah. Okay, so I want to say a couple of things in reflection is that we sit in an immense seat of privilege here in the Bay Area, here in California. Um, even my myself as an Indian American, I don't have the same experience as my black and Latinx colleagues. And I just want to make that really, really clear. And I think however we can use our privilege, privilege, whether it's your platform, your voice, or your wallet, we need to do that. And we need to come together as allies to support the work of Ms. Sharon and Trisha. And there's many, many other people like this throughout the country. Ms. Sharon and Trisha also happen to be from Texas and Louisiana, respectively, where there's high voter oppression. So, you know, we are not able to vote locally, but we can create a lot of pressure. And I know the Shack 15 community um, is partially why I picked this venue, because there's a lot of people here with deep networks and deep connections that can influence big business um, and government at a national level. So please take these stories to heart. I know you are. Um, and the other thing is we're not going to have time for a Q&A, and actually that was never our plan, but please find Patrice, please find Trisha, please find Ms. Sharon and ask them more questions and get involved in their work. You're here. This is a great start. For, for those of you that aren't already embedded in the work, we need many, many allies of all types of backgrounds to join um, a united front. And with that, I think um, I want to invite someone really, really special up here tonight. And this is a, a surprise guest. Um, huge thanks to Smita Mahanti for um, 
finding this this next guest and and bringing her to the space. Greer Naka uh, Nakadagawa Lee, I wrote it down so I wouldn't mess it up. Um, please please come up and and introduce yourself. Hi there, um, my name is Greer Nakadegawa Lee. I was the 2020 Oakland Youth Poet Laureate. And yeah, thank you guys so much for having me here today. And to the panelists, you guys are all amazing. I just wanted to say how honored I am to be here with all of you. It's just amazing. Thank you so much. Um, so I have two poems for you today. The first one, uh, Smita asked for me specifically to read because this is about anti-Asian hate and it's about police brutality against black Americans. And she knows, as all of these panelists know, that environmental justice is connected so deeply to racial justice. And with that, this poem is called A Song That Deserves to Be Sung. You feel fear and it is a thing that never quite touches your tongue. The police say no more Chinese New Year decorations on the door if you want to avoid incidents like this in the future. And so the tragedy becomes unspeakable. There is a song for this, barbed wire caught heavy in the throat, but I do not know the words. There is this song of silence that we sing when our grief cannot be spun into something sweet. When our sadness is not presentable enough to hold hands with in public. And how do you introduce this fear to your classmates? How do you say, the police held another black life hostage against the sidewalk and knew they'd get away with it. How do I say, there was another woman like the grandma I never knew knocked to the ground. Another act of violence the media will forget as soon as the cameras stop rolling. I have run out of compassion for the alienation of our bodies for the unspoken subhuman status implicit in every anti-black and anti-Asian manifesto. Whether the pen is a bill or a closed fist, I am tired of this pain being too heavy a thing to bring to the table until the names are rolling past on the evening news. Today I spit my grieving with my whole chest. Today there are decades of glass bodies on my tongue, see-through women and invisible men and the thousand blank stares that look right past us, that pen us into nameless chapters in history textbooks. I look at you and am burst open because you are singing the same song. There is a melody for this, sticky and regretful on your lips and it is not sweet. It is a step into the dawn. It is a museum of reckless instruments all shouting the same harmony. They tried to break us, tried to gift us the language of white supremacy through our TV screens, but we are two halves of the same splint. We are the cast wrapping around the break, holding each other's bodies sacred when no one else will. We are a song that deserves to be sung and no one, no one is turning the volume down.
Thank you. Yeah. I have one more poem. This is called The Body. I asked if I could read this because I think it's so connected to tonight because I think when a lot of people hear about environmental justice, they think, oh, that doesn't affect me. You know, that doesn't have anything to do with me. But it, it does, as all these people here know, that knows that affects people, it affects our bodies. And this poem is called The Body. It all comes back to the body again. It is never just words, I mean, just a speech or just economic policy. I hide my love letters in poems and they hide their hatred in calls for states' rights, in cries of blue lives matter, and it took me so long to learn that all these things come to blood in the end. It is never just a matter of skyscrapers of getting fish out of the ocean. It's about the undocumented fishermen paid in coins. It's about the hands that take the knife, that raise the saw and plunge it back into the earth. I'm saying it is always about the blood and aren't you sick of it? Aren't you also choking on the false innocence of politicians who've never seen the bodies their decisions lowered into the earth, never sat numb in the hunger their actions made? There are cities in America where it's illegal to give food to the homeless and people plucked off the street because they dared to protest violence against another body, and doctors forced to resign because they saved their patient's life, but against someone else's religion, and all these things are about the body too. I'm saying it is all about the blood and it is also all about your hands. I'm saying in a country like this, the most radical thing we can do is take care of each other. Thank you all so much. Thank you so much, Greer, and a warm welcome to our community. Um, unfortunately, we only have 15 minutes. I do want to say we have a DJ, so please hang around, mingle, get drinks, um, continue conversation. But with Greer's very, very powerful voice, I have one last question for Ms. Sharon, Tricia, and Patrice. And it's what's your message for the youth? It's a heavy time right now. I mean, I, I have a 14-month-old at, at home. Um, I'm constantly thinking about the future for my little guy. So what do we tell this next generation? I think um, you have to get engaged and they're always gonna tell you it's a done deal for some injustice. You know this, a lot of y'all know this. That's what they told us over and over and over. The mayor, the city council members, border patrol people, like this is a done deal. And nothing's ever a done deal. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, I, I often 
times what I've seen is young people do not realize the power that they have and you have it and uh, you just need to harness it, recognize it and harness it and get other like-minded people with you um, to, to, to be the change and uh, to, to seek positive change, right? In our world with climate issues, I mean, we should be thinking constantly about restoration and resilience and not, not destruction and pollution and, and profit for a teeny bit of people. Like, like, I think that time has come and gone. We, we don't have much time left. And so for the young people, this is the future that you're gonna inherit, that your kids, and um, it, it is up to you um, as to what kind of world you want uh, to, to inherit and who you want making the rules for you. You need to be making the rules for you and your, fu and your future. And uh, so you have to get engaged in that way. Thank you, Trisha. Ms. Sharon, do you have any reflections? Yes. I always tell my 10-year-old grandson to learn all that he can learn in school so he can carry on the torch because we want to leave this organization to him because he's interested. He asks questions. He's, he's trying to get involved. And education is the thing that I always preach to my community. I ask the schools to teach environmental science. Let them know what's going on. Teach them about the community. Teach them about the laws. And with that education, and they know what's going on, they will go further. They're going to want to get involved and want to save their community. My number one thing that I always preach is education to the young and the old. The people in St. James didn't know that they were being poisoned until Rise St. James educated them. So we want the young people to feel like they have a place that they could stay and not move out because of industry. So my number one thing is education. Spoken by a former teacher herself. <laughs> um, Patrice. Thanks. I'll just offer a couple of additional thoughts. I, I also have kids. I have a, uh, my daughter who turns 21, no, who turns 20 tomorrow, uh, and my son who's 17. Um, and, and I watch and I see the weight that they carry um, and the weight that they carry that is largely a product of our failure. Um, and I, and I, I hear it in things that they say to me. Um, I was sharing with folks yesterday when we were um, together that one of the things my daughter has said to me is, why would I have kids in the world like this? Um, and, you know, as you can imagine, it's a stake through my heart to hear that, uh, not just for my own personal um, and selfish reasons, but also because what it means about where we are in this world and what it, what, what, the young people feel that we are leaving to them. Um, and, and I wanna echo, I wanna echo something that, that Tricia was, was saying, which is, this is, there is no power that anyone has that you do not have. And don't let anybody tell you any differently. You can grab that power and you can make not incremental change, 
not changes around the margin, margins, but transformational change everywhere you have a presence. It's about fighting the fights that we heard about, heard about today, but it's also about being transformation in every space that you occupy. Don't be satisfied with the way things are because the way things are are never as good as they can be. Um, I work at Earth Justice, a, a big environmental uh, legal organization that I care about and love very much. Uh, and I also love that the young people in my organization are not letting it be what it has been. <laughs> they are demanding that we become something better and that we transform. And I would say to every young person, you can do that everywhere that you occupy space and you should. You should grab that power, you should use that power. You can be the instrument of change. Thank you all so much. I think I have nothing left to say after, after following what Patrice said. I just want to thank everyone again for coming and being curious and coming with an open mind and heart. And stick around. You know, there's going to be a DJ. The DJs are always amazing here. And the food's great. Such a chill vibe. So stay and hang out. I just want to shout out to the people over Plastic Team, um, Dennis, Miguel, the extended team, um, Dave Henson, Nagin, our advisory committees here, and Smitha Mahanti, who's People Over Plastic's creative director, um, curated this entire event tonight. So massive, massive thanks. Um, and finally, huge thanks to my amazing storytellers tonight, Patrice, Trisha, and Miss Sharon. This is just the beginning. Um, and actually, Patrice probably has a couple more things to I say. I'm just hoping you would ask our team to stand up and make themselves. Oh, yeah. If, if people over plastic folks want to stand up, it's okay. It's okay. I promise. Um, and Dave, Dave's on our advisory committee. Uh, Negin as well. So all these folks know what we're up to. So please, you know, find them, have a chat. Um, yeah. We have gifts for you all. We have buttons with Ride St. James on it. <laughs> it just, just a little something to show our appreciation. Thank you all for having Rise St. James in the house. Patrice, in the last few minutes, did you want to take uh, stock of who's in the audience? Any, uh, I'm, I'm, I think we'll, I think we okay. will, I think we'll let that go. Um, but I did want to say just thank you everyone for coming. Uh, it's been an extraordinary time. Uh, I, I think this evening has gone better than I, Jilpa and I possibly could have imagined. Uh, and as you can imagine, we were a little nervous, not knowing exactly what we were stepping into today. But I, I wanted to just let you know that we're really eager for these conversations to continue happening. We're going to keep producing the podcast, and we're going to be having these kinds of conversations all around the country. Um, we are... We welcome support for the project that we're working on. We think these kinds of dialogues don't happen enough. Um, they're critically important. And um, we, we invite you to, to reach out to us, to Shilpi or myself, about how you can support this project that's just getting off the ground. Thanks, everyone. We actually have little flyers, if you want to check it out, that Smita has over here. So feel free to take one. The visual's beautiful, created by the Shack team. Um, yeah, have fun, all.
Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next Conversations podcast coming soon. If you have a story that needs to be shared, we'd love to hear from you. For more information on Shack 15 and our community, you can email info at shack15.com, connect with us on Instagram, or visit our website at shack15.com.